Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. My guest this week is Rick Astley. We recorded this episode late in January of lockdown three, but I first met him in February 2020 at a mutual friend's birthday party. He's a rare thing, is Rick. He straddles generations, not just people like me in the 50s or a bit younger than me in their 40s who remember him as a cheeky young baritone singer who topped the charts, but those generations that use the internet know him as a cultural icon on the net for various memes and images he's become, and even the young generation know him as a feature in the game Fortnite. So I know eight-year-olds that can sing his music. That's real reach in the pop world, and I don't think he gets the credit for it. I hope you enjoy the interview anyway. Rick Astley, living legend. It is great to be with you this morning. I can't be in the same room as you for obvious reasons, but I can't help but notice the room you are sitting in has a whole load of guitars sitting behind you. It does. I've been I've been in the attic this morning to bring them down, Tom, just to make it look a bit more rock and roll. <laughs> um, no, I'm in, I'm in my little studio, uh, which is at the back of the house. It's in a converted garage, basically. I've actually made records in this room, and it's a cosy room, and I feel comfy in here, so it's a good place to do a podcast, I think. In, in a different bit of the territory, I'm the Cherry UK Music. I've been doing a lot of Zoom calls with increasingly anxious music makers, Yeah, and the conversation always gets to how many guitars have you got and what's your favorite guitar so i'm going to ask you that question how many guitars have you got and what's your favorite um i've got quite a few guitars i don't play them all anymore there's one or two that i own really because i like them they don't record very well and i wouldn't take them out on a tour if you know what i mean i've got a really old gretsch which is older than i am I've actually got a Gibson Lucille, which B.B. King signed. No. Uh, it's not one of his. He didn't own the guitar. It was donated by Gibson at a charity, yeah. and it was in Los Angeles. You know who Clive Davis is, obviously, and it was his charity all that he does every year. B.B. King was there, and he offered to sign this guitar, and hardly anyone was bidding for it, and I just couldn't understand why, and I just thought, right, so I bid for it, and I bought it in the end, anyway, won it or whatever. So I tend not to play that because it's literally got his signature in gold <laughs> marker pen on it. No, be, that, so I'm terif- that on the wall. terrified of rubbing it off, yeah, yeah. But um, to be honest, um, we had a break-in uh, in the last house, and some of the guitars that I'd had from back in the 80s and stuff were stolen, and they weren't super valuable. They, they were valuable to me, if you know what I mean. They had a lot of memories. They'd been around the world... Um, so I've kind of detached myself from the kind of like prize possession thing of owning guitars anymore, just because, 
you don't know whether you're going to own them forever yeah. anyway. So That relationship where memories are projected onto inanimate objects, I guess if you're a creator as well, I mean, to put those memories on a particular physical object, it's hard to get rid of them, I guess, isn't it? So, I mean, maybe they did you a favour, Nick, in the guitars. Yeah, well, yeah, I can't see it that way, to be honest. But, yeah, I know what you mean. And I think also there's certain, certain musicians have a signature look because of their guitar or their bass. You look at Paul McCartney and the Hofner bass and that whole thing and... Look at Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl. We all know about him playing that Blue Gibson. And, and there's certain people have a thing about their look and it comes from the instrument they play. You know, yeah. Elton John doesn't look right unless he's sat behind the piano. You know what I mean? He, he comes out and talks and gets involved with the audience and everything. But it's like, hang on a minute, aren't you supposed to be playing the piano? It just doesn't look right when he's not playing the piano because it's kind of so ingrained in who he is and what he's given us. Your instrument is really your voice, isn't it? But you're actually, you play guitar and you were a drummer in a band called FBI, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I still play drums. I love playing drums anyway, because it's just, it's a very animalistic thing to do, I think, play drums. I'm not great. I could play in a pub band. No offence to pub bands, by the way. But I could play in a pub band and get away with it. And I've actually got a band. We haven't played, obviously we haven't played for a year, but we haven't played for quite a while before that with two friends and we just do like rocky punky covers from our childhood all the way through to what we like now that's still rocky and punky. Uh, we call the Luddites because it's just back <laughs> to basics. You know, for the three of us can't play it in like a minute, then we're not doing it. And I just really love playing drums behind the, those two guys. And uh, unfortunately, I have to sing as well because they won't. Um, <laughs> I just love it. The couple of records that I've made in this room, I have actually played all the instruments. And I kind of feel proud of that in a way. But more importantly, I think it's given me some sort of identity if you like within what I'm trying to do it sort of narrows down what I'm trying to create if you know what I mean because if you've got you know five different producers ten different songwriters I think certain times that can water down what an artist is and you can't really pinpoint what they're trying to do and as you say most of all it's about my voice really when it's my records and I have to kind of I want to own that but I also want to give that a bit of space and if I had the best musicians in the world like the guys in my band and stuff They'd want to play too much. I keep it simple. Yeah, I could see that. This is the bit I really wanted to talk to you about. We're actually the same age. I know you've got a birthday coming up. I'm thinking about you reflecting on the contribution you've made to British cultural life, right? I mean, you, you've got decades of it. I remember your comeback tour, which was mm. 20 years ago. Or not, not mm. your comeback tour, but what people describe as your comeback. And then I was thinking about your significance in British culture. And this matters to me, you know, as a policymaker and my UK music role. I mean, you're a massive pop star selling lots of records. Mm -hmm. You represent an era of time. You represent a musical genre. You're probably the subject of the most powerful internet meme in <laughs> digital history, <laughs> yeah. which is cross-generational. As you reflected on your birthday in the middle of lockdown, how does that impact on you? Do you have to carry it around? Is it a heavy load? If I'm truly thoughtful about it and honest about it i don't really carry that around with me in any way shape or form it's only if i'm doing a podcast or something and we're going to talk about my career if we can call it that whatever then yeah i'll become aware of it especially the internet thing with we're never going to give you up the meme thing and everything because that's kind of taken me by surprise over the last 10 years or whatever it's been just as much as anybody else that's for sure yeah and i i'm grateful for it to be honest because i think it's actually throw me into an area sometimes that there's no way somebody my age with that long ago since I had proper hits in the charts in that way, you wouldn't be brought into anyone's consciousness really because it's really tough. You know, there's a billion things out there to grab someone's attention 
So an old song from the 80s, it's hard to get that, you know, even though the 80s are, I think, pretty strong in a lot of youth culture, you know, I think the sounds from a lot of those days, some of the drum sample sounds and what have you, and also the keyboards and stuff are kind of really important to record makers right now. Do you know what I mean? They're sort of digging back into that. A bit like various artists have gone into Motown or they've gone into a soul kind of thing to reinvent it and bring new life to it in a different way. They've done that with some of the really cheesy 80 records as well. Some of the cheesy sounds they're using, do you know what I mean? So, and obviously if you look at the videos as well, even someone like Miley Cyrus or something, they're kind of semi-obsessed with the 80s in terms of a look and a fashion thing, you know? Yeah. So I think that's always a, a revolving thing. But I think for me personally, it's a bit weird to see those videos. I was doing something yesterday and we were looking back at some of the old videos and stuff. And it's tough because to be fair, for me, yeah, all right, I'm that dude in the video, but I'm also me. And when I look back at me being 21, that's tough, man. Do you know what I mean? I think it'd be hard for anybody who's in their mid-50s to look back at themselves on old videos when they're 21, whether they're graduating from college or whatever it is. If you look to them at 21, 22, they'd struggle a little bit, I think. And I certainly do. I wasn't going to go anywhere near this, but I was watching some of those old videos. I mean, right, okay. one of them, the YouTube one, the big one, is 850 right. million views on your, yeah, on yeah. your channel. Yeah, which for an old boy is not so bad. I mean, the, the younger people who are, who are obviously in their moment right now, Okay, the figures they get are just unbelievable. But I think for an old video, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. I thought it was amazing. And it also reminded me, I recently interviewed Horace Panther, the bass player with the specials, right? Which right. were obviously growing up in the Midlands in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. I was a Fred Perry wearing rude boy, right? But then I remembered the next catalogue coming out in the early 80s and wanting to look like you. <laughs> and those big shoulder jackets that were, which in yeah, itself yeah. was a sort of a bit of an homage to the 50s rock and roll a little bit, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, for instance, I did the Prince's Trust once and the suit that I wore, the shoulder pads are just unbelievable. And for me, they've got more in common with Frank Sinatra even than they have with anything else. And I had a couple of suits that were made by John Paul Gaultier because I was, you know, I was cash rich at the time and I just wanted to spoil myself and um, the shoulder pads were unbelievable but at the time it was normal it felt normal to be walking around with shoulder pads like an American football player but when I look back now at myself at some of those photographs and stuff and see them I kind of think if you put that in black and white I could be stood next to Frank Sinatra yeah you're right yeah it's interesting but the clothes thing is kind of strange because I think in the 80s what you were definitely defined what you liked in music, the kind of person you were, some of your political views, and you, it defined you as a person, definitely what you wore, didn't it? It was almost like gang sort of territory sometimes with clothes. You could identify that person as being a skinhead, a rocker, or what have you. And now you've got no idea what someone's into just because of the way they're dressed. And I like that. I think that's a lot healthier, you know what I mean? It's just wear what you like, you know. I like that because there's more genre hopping, isn't there, as well? And that, that, yeah. that's one of the things I wanted to... I'm glad you mentioned the 80s because I remember Billy Bragg telling me, uh, uh, you know, again, I used to follow Billy. I remember asking him and saying to him, Billy, I noticed that you do more gigs where that are seated rather than people standing now. Uh, why right. is that? And, and he, he basically said, well, because they're all getting old like you, Tom, yeah. and they can't stay yeah. up for three hours, right? But this is not the case with, with you, Rick. I'm going to play you this, right, because this <laughs> blew my mind. Okay. This is my friend's eight-year-old. I love Fortnite and I got your dance thing. 
They're gonna give you one, they're gonna let you out, they're gonna wanna around that. They're gonna let you cry, they're gonna say goodbye, they're gonna tell a lie. I heard you. Very good. It's got good timing. Crazy, isn't it? That is your music yeah. in Fortnite, the video game, which is yeah. ubiquitous around the planet. Yeah. That's an eight-year-old child hearing from his mum that I was interviewing you today, and he just yeah. came out with that. I know, and I think I used the word grateful about what happened with the meme thing and what I've been, and it kind of just carrying on a little bit with things like Fortnite. And I can understand a lot of artists would be so over it if one of their old songs kept getting used for things. And I think sometimes artists fall into a trap of wanting to choose their audience, and I just think... Just be grateful you've got one. You know yes. what I mean? Maybe yeah. if you're in your moment, you're at your pinnacle peak, whatever, yeah, maybe you can be a bit more choosy where you play and the kind of thing you want to do. But the truth and reality, I think, when you get to a certain point in life is you're just glad somebody remembers you, never mind. So <laughs> I think that's just an honest view. I've done a lot of gigs with a lot of other people from the 80s, you know, like a rewind kind of style gig or what. I've done loads of those. I haven't done them for a little while because I've had a couple of records that have kept me busy with new songs and what have you. But... I know the feeling of walking out to an audience who just want to hear your old songs. And I know that when I do my gigs, there's parts of the audience for sure, they just want to hear the old ones. <laughs> Luckily, we've managed to sort of drag them in with the new ones a bit. But I don't ever disrespect the thing about somebody finding a piece of music, whatever age they are, whether they loved it back in the day or whether they've stumbled on it because it's part of their mum or dad's collection or they find it in a video game. I'm just like... If they like it, I don't really care what age they are, I don't care whatever. I'm just like, that's a good thing, that's a nice thing. In 30-odd years of being in the industry, no-one has got a bad word to say about you. You've got a sense of balance, which I find extraordinary. And that comes through. I mean, your audience love you, don't they? I mean, you've got a very loyal base of followers that have stuck with you in good times and bad. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really difficult on the sense of finding out who anybody is as a music artist because whether we want to admit it or whether we try to do it on purpose or not, I've still got a veneer here slightly because we're doing a podcast, which is an interview. There's an element of, I'm pretty chilled out. I mean, I, you know, I've, I'm in bare feet, by the way, and I've got a copper, and I'm, you know what I mean? <laughs> me too, me but, too. I'm, but, but there is still an element of awareness that we're doing an interview. You know, we're not in a pub or having a cup of coffee somewhere, and it's just you and me. And I think I do carry that in pretty much everything that I do when I'm working, whether it's going on a TV show or whether it's doing a gig. If I'm honest, I feel there's a tiny bit of responsibility for me to remember that what I do and what I've managed to get away with is a privilege. I don't ever want to forget that. And I, I like to see that in sports people. I really love it when, especially like the footballers are earning all that money and all the rest of it, but when you can still see there's a glint in their eye that sort of says, I I'm lucky to be here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Forget talent and forget all the effort they've had to put in. And that goes for anybody, musically, whatever. There is still an element of luck. So I try not to be an arse, basically. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. My wife, Lena, has to put up with being an arse. She also manages me, so she has a lot of that. Yeah. But I try really hard to remember how lucky I am. Do you have luck or do you make your luck? Definitely there is a thing of making your own luck, for sure. I also think one of the biggest things, just occasionally when people have said to me, what advice would you pass on to somebody young who's trying to make it? One of the things I would say is try and be ready for when your opportunity comes and recognise that that is the opportunity. Try and be awake enough and alert enough to go, this is it. Because I would dread to think how many people have got back into their car or got on a train 
after having a meeting and going, nah, I'm not so sure, and thinking, no, that's it. That's the moment you say, yes, I'll do this. And when did you spot that moment, Rick? I think, to be honest, it was meeting Pete Waterman. Yeah. If I'm going to be flat honest about it, and, and Pete knows this, he saw me in a band. I was playing in a band, and I wanted to be in that band. He just wasn't interested in bands at all. And it took quite a while. It wasn't like, you know, I just made the decision next week. It was quite a few months after, and I'd been to London twice to see him and stuff. I just thought, you know what, this might be my minute. This might be my chance to actually make a record. And it might only be that. It might be you made one single, boom, it didn't work, whatever. But I think this is it. I think this is the chance. And so in the end, I just thought, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. And and obviously Pete Waterman then, and the whole Stock Aitken Walkman thing hadn't really started. They were laying the foundations, but they hadn't really cracked it as such. But to me, they were streets ahead. They had a proper studio in London. Pete Waterman wore red leather pants. Need I say more? Yeah. Um, you know, they were making records. And bizarrely, literally, in kind of weeks around me signing to them, they had their first number one record. Four or five weeks later, or whatever it was, they had the next one. <laughs> and it just kept going and going. So I'd obviously signed with the right guys in terms of having a pop hit, you know. You seize the moment, you took a leap. But let me give you the other side of that. I, you know, in politics, the biggest mistake people make is leaving it for too long. I, I would say that, given that I stood down last year unexpectedly. But you also, I mean, you tell this story, and tell me if I've got this wrong, but about how you were coming back from a gig in, I think it was 87, and you're sitting in the back of the car and you say to the manager... No, it started in 87, so that would have been around 93, I think, because our daughter would have been about one... I mean, it's a whole catalogue of things as it is with most people in any profession, but certainly in music, there's usually a lot of backstory to get to a moment. Yeah. Mine was, I didn't want to do it anymore. That's the ultimate nugget of it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I realised how lucky I was and everything, but I also thought, this is wrong because my heart's not in it. I don't really love it anymore. Because what I was doing, to be honest, was I was kind of being a travelling salesman. Nothing wrong with being a travelling salesman, but you should like the product you're selling. Yeah. And I'd fallen out of love with the whole music business. Yeah, It's a pretty crappy business, I think, really. It's great when it's going great, but when it isn't going great, great, it's pretty ugly. And I just got to a point where it had started to affect me really quite severely emotionally and stuff in terms of, like, I wouldn't fly anymore. So I took trains all over Europe to promote this album that we had. I wasn't at the peak of my career, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, but I was still capable of having a top 10 record maybe and stuff. It had started to kind of tick away in America and doing okay, and we were going to go and do some big TV shows there in New York. And we were on the motorway going to Heathrow, and I turned to my then manager, who's still one of my closest people in my life, really. I don't see much of him now, but he's certainly one of the people that's been there for me in life, really. And I just said, I can't do it anymore. And he recognised in me that I'd come to the end. Yeah. And it was a massive deal because I knew that this was me turning down a record career, really. You know, they're not going to say, no problem, you take your time. They're just going to go right next, move on. Yeah. So it was a big deal. And that was it. He just said, well, let's just turn the car around and go home. I don't think every manager would do that. For the most part, managers, I think, save their artists. They put their artists in positions where they can function and they can do it and they can put up with doing a million interviews a day, blah, blah, and all of that. They do look out for them. Yeah. But I don't think every manager does that. And I think every now and again, people would say, oh, come on, let's just get on the plane and have a few drinks and we'll be fine. Yeah. And uh, he just said, no, let's just go on. He just realised I'd had enough. And let's face it, I wasn't going to be worrying about paying the gas bill. I've never really had a job, as it were, but I've never had any kind of financial worries either, you know. Yeah. And so 
it's an easier decision to turn something like that down if you know you're going to be comfortable, you know. But there's still quite a big decision about meaning and relevance after that. I mean, what was it like? So you, what, what, when you actually got home, what, was your, what were the next few months like? It was a weird time to think back on, but I was just relieved, I think. I was just relieved that I didn't have to go and sell a record. Did you make any music in that time? Um, I mean, I didn't for a while. For a little while, I just kind of floated around, to be honest. I was just, I just couldn't believe I had all this time on my hands. Because yeah. I'd been really busy for like from, from 2001 to 93 or what have you. I was really, really, really stupidly busy. Because I had quite a few hits, you know, in, in a short period of time. And yeah. it burned really bright while it burned. And it was kind of amazing. But it burns you out. It really, really burns you out. I was so lucky that Never Gonna Give You Up was such a big start point. You know, it's number one in loads of countries. We went everywhere with that record, like literally everywhere. I remember like when we finally got to tour in Australia, I'd been there a couple of times. I did an arena gig in Tasmania. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that doesn't mean like, hey, I was really big. I just mean that the reach of it was just ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. And when you're one of those artists who's flavour of the month or what have you, it just gets a bit intense and it's so far removed from actual music. I'm sure you've heard this a million times. You wake up one morning going, I'm not really a musician, I'm not really a singer, I don't really do what it says on the tin. After a while, it just gets like, well, I don't want to do this and crazily, I've got the money to stop doing it now. That's the weird thing. I once heard somebody who had a very successful record label say to me, and I wanted to punch him at the time, but I just had to <laughs> grip the seat not to. He said, I don't think artists should be paid their money until years later. And what he meant was he probably just didn't say it the way that I wanted to hear it, really. Yeah. But since I've sort of digested and thought about what I think he meant, and that was that it kind of ruins the desire and the creativity sometimes. Yeah. Because it brings all the fear of like, well... I'm really comfortable now. A bit like boxers, if you take away all the struggle and they're super mega comfortable, you don't want to get in there and get lumped on the chin so much. Do you know what I mean? Because your life's really comfortable. Yeah. And I think with musicians sometimes, the struggle and the kind of like living in a bedsit and all the rest of it, some of the best music in the world was written in a bedsit. You know what I mean? And I don't know whether you can write it as you sat by your pool in Los Angeles or whatever it is. I don't know. I don't completely agree with what he said, but I kind of understand where I he know, came I from I could see it. it, the sort of the creativity urge, the reaction to events where there's hardship, people sort of, you know, their brains are sort of engaged. I can see yeah. the, I can see his argument, although it's easy for a record label owner to say that to us. Yeah, he wasn't saying don't ever pay them. I think he was just saying that he should, maybe should stagger it. I mean, listen, I don't mind talking about money because it really bores me when people who've made music say, you know, oh, no, well, I've never done it for the money. I'm not interested in the money. That's because you've got it. Yeah. The reason you're not interested in money is because you've got lots of it. And it bores me that. But anyway, that's just my no, no, chip I, on no, my no, shoulder. Now you've got onto money. I, I wasn't going to go here either, but I am going to mention it now. It's relevant to the current climate we're in. I mean, we've got session musicians, the charity help musicians giving out food parcels because live has not been around for yeah. nearly a year now. You were on an international tour that basically got closed down halfway through because of the pandemic. You never told me this. I found out elsewhere but you looked after your band well we've tried in little ways for sure to try and do something i struggle mentally emotionally like everyone does because it's really weird it's like this thing that you got so used to doing and believe me that's one of the great things about playing live the rush it gives you i don't think just lasts for the time that you're on stage i mean definitely you, you walk off stage and you calm down and you what have you but 
good gigs stay with you for quite a long time. They, yeah. they do with me anyway. I'm, I'm on a high for quite a long time. And, and the whole thing of not doing that emotionally and mentally and the people that you work with, you know, the crew and the band and everybody, there's banter, there's sort of camaraderie, there's all of that thing that's completely gone. And yeah, we do Zooms occasionally, but it's not the same thing. The whole thing about hanging out with people, especially when you're doing a tour, is you're in and out of each other's pockets, you know, things that become really, really funny. Like any people have at work, I'm sure, you know, this little thing that isn't funny to anybody else is hilarious to us. And we're missing all of that. But the ultimate thing, that the wolf that comes to the door, is that people aren't earning any money. And obviously that goes for people in theatre work as well. Any kind of work that we sort of put into this bracket of being the glamorous lifestyle of performers and even people who work, you know, backstage and stuff, it's still kind of exotic and this, that and the other. They've been robbed of the actual life of it, you know, the pleasure of it, if you like, and what keeps them sane and keeps them motivated. But kind of more importantly, long term, they've been robbed of the financial side of it. And it's it's terrifying, I think. It really is. I mean, people didn't realise it's nearly 200,000 jobs full-time in the UK, yeah, commercial yeah. music alone. And some of the sections, like, you, you know, the specialist lighting and sound support, tech support, we might lose that forever. Some of the big studios might go if it carries on like this. And that's what worries me for UK culture. We're net taxpayers to the UK music industry. Uh, we pay for the schools and hospitals, but if we don't get live back until the end of the year, I think we're going to be a much smaller sector. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the other thing is how do you bring it back? Do you say we've reached a point now, you know, in terms of vaccinations and what have you, so it's fine, we're going to open up arenas or we're going to open up smaller theatres or we're going to open up small bars or we're going to do summer gigs, outdoor gigs. What are the first things that are going to start to bring it back? And a friend of mine who worked in production for shows all over the world and we were talking about it and saying, it might take the actual artist saying, well, I'll do it for nothing. You know, so we'll do whatever venues, but we'll do it for less people. And everyone who needs to earn a living from it will earn a living. And I'm the artist, and I'm lucky. I'll earn a living next time. Yeah. At some point, I think all artists are going to have to look at it and say, I can afford to do this. If we don't do it, and maybe some of the huge companies who can afford to do it as well, but I'm not so sure they can at the moment, there's going to have to be an element of just getting the show back on the road without any profit in it, I think. I don't mean that for the musicians and the crew and everything, obviously, because we're talking about a day-to-day -day livelihood sort of thing. But for the artists who can afford to do it, we might have to just sort of say, OK, well, we're going to do those shows for nothing, just to bring it back, yeah. Well, not everyone would say that, Rick, but I know you're really close to the people you work with, and that's really important. Well, thank you, but I would also say that that's also me looking at it as a business and saying, if I sold fruit and vegetables and the only way to get people buying them again was give them away for free for the first two weeks. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, I'm, I'm looking at it from a business perspective. If I want to play gigs for the next 10 years, then I might have to do a few months of doing it for nothing at the beginning just to get the ball rolling is all I'm saying. You know, yeah. and, and I'm up for talking with people, and I know Lena, my wife, manager, would be up for that as well. It's like, how do we, how do we get this going? You know, because it can't all be just down to, well, let's charge more for the tickets because people have lost their jobs. They're not thinking about buying tickets anyway or certainly not more expensive ones. No, that's going to be hard. But less, less disposable income, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be hard. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's it been like lockdown for you? I mean, you, you get a balance of sort of, you know, tour around the world. Presumably, you, you've had a very quiet year. What, what's what's, your, what's have, you been like? What you been up to? I built a, like a roof in the, I'm going to call it a roof in the garden, like a pergola roof in the garden. So I've done a bit of that. I'll keep tidying and then retidying everything. I keep going, I keep restringing guitars and I keep this, that and the other. I have actually written and sort of demoed a lot of songs, but I don't want to finish them properly, i.e. finish the lyrics or actually track them properly because I don't want them to be old when we come to possibly hopefully release something. So I've written a bunch of things, I just haven't finished them. Have you written more during lockdown than you normally would? I think I did in a period of time, yeah. Um, yeah. Because I just sort of buried myself in this room. I think I've also written some lyrical ideas for things, as I'm sure loads of people have, and I'm sure there'll be novels, films, all sorts, that are, you know, none of them are called we need a vaccine, but... There's sort of elements in them about things where you kind of think, hmm, this is a very reflective sort of lyrical idea, I think, you know what I mean, about where we are right now. But yeah. it's always difficult anyway because I, I write pop music and I like pop music, so it's it's hard to marry the two sometimes to try and write lyrics that don't instantly turn people off because what they want to do is get up and dance. There you go again on reflection. You see, very few really famous artists like you I think, have the power of self-reflection like you do. Do you distinguish that in yourself? I mean, that period when you left the kind of front line of pop, in that sense, mm. with your manager, and now you're reflective about where the industry goes. Do you consider yourself a reflective person? Has that got you through the hard times? Um, I think I'm quite realistic. When we have conversations, the Royal We, the, the record label, and Lena and Simon, who co-manage me as well, Everyone can be maybe a bit more positive than I am about my own career or my own music or whatever. And I'm the one who's usually kind of saying, okay, that's, that's great, but let's, you know, let's tone it down a bit. <laughs> because I think I'm just, um, I don't think I've got complete imposter syndrome. I really don't. I know that's a, a very current term, but I don't think I have that. I think I've, I've got a bit of that, definitely. Of course I do. I'm from the North. Um, but I think I'm just really realistic. But I think I was pretty realistic when I was having my golden moment back in the 80s, you know, when, not to be a complete arse about it, but the first two singles went to number one in America. And that's like, that was mind-numbing because a lot of people who were having probably bigger careers than I was in Europe and what have you, British artists and stuff, weren't getting anything going in America. Do you know what I mean? It was a very kind of just, it was just, I just managed to get in there and it just worked. And it was a bit of a game changer as well. It's an enormous thing to have a hit record in America because it sort of reflects around the rest of the world. It's like Japan just suddenly goes, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. If he's had a hit in America, that's fine. Let's bring him in, you know. And I think even coming back here, it was, what, he's had big hits in America as well. Oh, right, okay. Oh, yeah, must be all right then. <laughs> so I think I, I, I've been super realistic when even that was going on and thinking, yeah, 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 but, you know, 
it's not George Michael, is it? You know what I mean? He had like 10 number ones or whatever he had. Do you know what I mean? There's a level you have to kind of be realistic about where you are. And all right, try and be bigger if you want and try and go for more success. But I just always had an understanding of going, I just won't ever be as big as George Michael. He was exceptionally good, I think, at so many things. One of which, even though I think, you know, it's quite public that he grew to kind of almost hate it, he was great at being a star. Yeah. He was a great songwriter. He was an amazing vocalist. People don't give him the credit for that. He was incredible. He produced records that really kind of touched people and worked and everything. But he was great at being a star. He looked like a star. He just looked like he should be having 10 number ones in America, you know? He was a very troubled man, though. Well, obviously, obviously he was. But again, and, and I don't always like to glue these things together, but I do think sometimes people who have got a very, very troubled life end up excelling at something. And it doesn't just have to be music either. You know, I think there's a lot of sports people. I'm sure there's a lot of politicians who've got very, very big skeletons in their you know, closet <laughs> and they've got, they've got a lot of trouble things in their life, but it, it drives them to excel or to achieve even. The one um, thing I realise about politicians, they're very, you know, they're driven people. They're, it's yeah. vocational, this, which must be the same. I mean, it's the parallels with the creative sector are the same. Yeah. When you recorded that first single that became the first your first number one in America, did did you know you'd recorded a massive hit? Um, I don't know about massive to the to the extent that it went on to be, but I definitely had quite a good feeling about it. Partly because Stockhake and Waterman at the time were kind of you know scoring goals for fun, as they say. Do you know what I mean? They were having a lot of hits, and I remember the absolute beginning of that song. The three guys, Stockhake and Waterman, had hired a guy called Ian Kernel to be like what was called a programmer back then, or still might be today, which would come in and play keys and get drum tracks going and just sort of build things for them so that they didn't have to be doing the nitty-gritty, as it were. It just so happened Ian's a bit of a genius. And Mike Stock came down to Ian, put the chords into this thing called a Fairlight, which was this super expensive, crazy bit of equipment, which, by the way, I helped him take out of the boxes <laughs> and set up. And I also got him his coffee and his sandwiches while he did this. Um... <laughs> So Mike Stock put the chords in, sang the melody to Ian, and then Ian just started building a track around it, some of which they used for sure, like I think the strings and some of the brass parts and whatever. They changed all the drums and the bass in the end. So I sat there listening to my first song get created, basically. Because I worked at Stockick in Waterman's building. I signed kind of like a YTS thing where I went to work at their... I mean, I, was, I signed a record deal with them, but I was on a YTS scheme as well. Yeah. It was a bit weird, all of that. But in a way, it was fantastic because I got to go to the pub with the three biggest pop producers probably in the world at that time for, for about a year. You know, I lived at Pete Waterman's flat. I used to drive in to work with him in the morning. And back in those days, you could be on the phone or driving. So he'd be driving in to work from Crouch End on his massive, great big sort of 80s phone screaming at certain people, taking calls from bank managers, doing all the rest of it, sort of saying, you know, that drum track's rubbish. It's rubbish, I tell you. <laughs> you know? And um, so I was around the whole process of that song, but not only just the song, but also their mentality and their way of doing things. So I think by the time they finished it, I kind of thought, we've got a really good chance of this being a hit. So when you laid that track, you knew you got a hit or, you'd, you know, you were a part of a creative collaboration that felt like something important that was going to happen with it. Did you have the power to think, what's my life going to be like in 30 years back then? I was 20, I think, at the time when we recorded that. Um, so I wasn't thinking 
30 years ahead, do you know what I mean? Um, 30 days ahead is hard in your 20s. Yeah, I mean, you know, and also I think one of the things that I'm really grateful for, like I say, is being in the Stock Aitken Waterman building from when it was a bit shabby, if I'm honest, through a couple of year period where they were massive, absolutely huge. So I got to see what happened to them. Matt and Mike, the other two guys, Stock and Aitken, yeah. they were driving a Datsun whatever in 19 whatever, you know what I mean? They, they yeah. were driving just whatever cars that they had on lease agreements. Yeah. And literally within a year, they were coming into work in whichever Ferrari they wanted to come to work in <laughs> that day. And it had an impact and an effect, I think, definitely. I'd never been around people who owned Ferraris, but neither had they. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a bit weird for them, I think. It was yeah. kind of like, wow, you know. Um, yeah. This was a hit machine. This was a sort of, and I saw it become one. You know, I was there making tea on the Dead or Alive album that Spin Me Round came from. It was a really interesting thing to be around. It was really, really interesting. Pete Waterman, he's got a very strong Midlands connection. And in my yeah. old borough, I used to be the MP for West Bromwich, the borough yeah. of Sandwell. They had this annual model railway exhibition. <laughs> and, and he's obsessed with model railways. He is, yeah, yeah. When you were in his flat, did he have a model railway then? Uh, he had more than model railways. Before it had a hit record or anything, I went to Cardiff on the train to pick up two model trains for Pete, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, okay, yeah, great, I'll go and do that. I mean, I might be making tea one day for whoever and doing whatever, so yeah, I just jumped on the train and off I went. So I get to this place and I had to take a taxi. So I'm going up the hill from the train station and I get to this tiny little shop, you know, thinking, what is it with these trains? <laughs> yeah, these guys are just crazy. So I go in there and they're made of steel and they're like two and a half foot long, you know. They weighed a ton. I'm like, why the hell am I carrying these on the train? <laughs> anyway, I managed to get them on the train and get them back to London. They were worth thousands of pounds, you know. And that was the beginning of me realising that Pete is... He's unusual, is Pete Waterman. He's very unusual. And he's got that certain quality, I think, where when he hones in on something, he really hones in on it. In other words, it's like sort of seeing a real passion in someone and somebody to say... No, we're going to go the extra mile. We're going to do this. If we're going to do it, we're doing it. And that is either getting steel trains made in a little place out in Wales down to perfection, do you know what I mean? Or eventually owning real trains. Or if we're going to have hits, we're having hits. We're having proper hits. Though they were a trio, Pete Waterman was kind of the front man, wasn't he? The driving force in the business. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was definitely more the A&R person, you know. And he was also the businessman in terms of all the deals that they had to put together just to get the financing to have the building they had and everything, which as a kid I didn't really sort of grasp and wasn't interested in. But when I think back to it, their studio was right behind Borough Tube. It was over three or four floors. Even in the time that I was there, they set up another two studios, you know, where they'd go out and buy a desk for a quarter of a million pounds and tape machines that were state-of-the-art. There was a lot of money that they had to invest to do what they were doing. And Pete wasn't ever afraid of doing that. He just kind of said, look... If we're going to make the best pop we can make, we need all the gear to do it. And he'd just go out and do that. And yeah. I, I think I, I sometimes feel I'm defending them. And I don't mean it to be like that, but I saw the other side of it. I saw the side of it where Pete would say to me and he'd say to the junior tape ops, like really young guys and girls, and he'd say, look, if you want to use the studio at the weekend, there's no one in. You can. So I can go in a studio where they've just made a number one record with somebody and I'm allowed to go in there and do my demos. Oh, and by the way, Mark's going to come in and engineer for you, or Duffy's going to come and engineer for you, who might have just mixed the number one record. And that, to me, was really precious. The idea of just handing over the studio and going, knock yourself out, was amazing. And 
it's partly the reason that I got songs on the two albums that I did with them because I do my demos and I keep ramming them down Pete's throat. I guess the real ultimate reason for that is that Pete wanted to sign me to a major label. He wanted, he didn't just want to try and put it out himself. So he approached RCA Records and the head of A&R there, Peter Robinson, great guy, he came and they, they hadn't recorded anything with me yet. So I sang, just like with an old mic, in a, through a crappy little bass bin speaker that was just hanging around somewhere. And I sang to my four-track demos that I'd done in Newtley Willows. And because of that, Pete Robinson said, who wrote these songs? And Pete Waterman, like that, said, oh, he's a great songwriter as well. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think he had any intention, really, of, of most of their artists ever really writing. You know, I know the Bananas did and various people wrote with them, obviously, but generally speaking, the idea was, we write the songs, we produce the songs, you just go out and sing them. Yeah. And because of that, I got, I got four songs on an album that ended up being pretty massive around the world. That allowed you more security later in life. Yeah, for sure. And, and also, I think, especially when I went to America and places, because I had a top ten there that I wrote and stuff, and, I, you know, we released singles here that I wrote, but I think it just made certain people think, OK, so we can write songs, and OK. It just changed the dynamic just ever so slightly, if you know what I mean. We were all regarded as being puppets. If you went through the Stock Aitken Walkman thing, you were called a puppet. And I understand that, and... I just don't think anybody called Whitney Houston a puppet. They didn't call Frank Sinatra a puppet, that's for sure. They yeah. didn't call Elvis a puppet. But none of those guys ever wrote their songs. But, you know, it was a different era, I think, sometimes. But well, it was a different era. But, I mean, look, 30 years on from that, you're yeah. still Rick Astley. You're still touring the planet when you're allowed to. Mm. Uh, you've still got a period of reflection. What, what are you going to do in the next 20 years, Rick? Well, it's going to be interesting to see what anybody's next 20 years is going to be, isn't it, after this? Because I think we're all hoping that it's going to go back to normal. But as, as the term says, what is the new normal? You know, what will it be? Not many artists have managed to have 25, 30-year careers. I know I've been around for a while, but I mean, I've not had a 30-year career by any stretch of the imagination. I had four or five years at it in the early days. I've sort of bummed around and done different things and what have you. And then... I've managed to have a couple of records that have done okay recently, you know, so that's great. But it's not, it's, Kyle Minogue's had a 30-year career. You two have had, I don't know how long they've been going. You know, there are a few artists that have done it, but not many have. And so to look 20 years ahead, I'm going to take it as it comes, if I'm honest. Um, I still have a desire to go and play live because it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing in that that's where you get your rewards, you've got your team effort, people around you. Yeah. Thankfully, I'm so lucky that I have a really amazing group of people who come away with us when we tour and, you know, the guys and the girls in the band and the crew and everything. We have just as much of a laugh in a wet field in Doncaster. No offence, Doncaster, but I think you know what I'm saying. As we do in some exotic location in South America or wherever, when we genuinely do. I think most artists and most people who go on tour will tell you that. It just helps when you get a bit of sunshine sometimes and you think, yeah, we're on Bondi Beach. You know I mean, that's, it just helps. My wife and I do it regularly. We will have a glass of something nice with a nice view in front of us and say, how did we get here? I'm 55 very soon. To still have the opportunity to go to places like Australia, and those are the last gigs we did, Australia and New Zealand, I just don't take it for granted. And I don't want to be all sort of like, oh, isn't he nice? You know, I, I just don't take it for granted. There's so many artists who had every bit of success that I had and more and for whatever reason either can't do it or they've just been dealt a different set of cards or played them differently and they're not doing that. And I just sort of think, well, just hang on to the fact of how amazing that is, you know. 
Mate. I've left this till the end because I, I didn't want to be <laughs> fan worship you, but I remember, I think it was 87, I was talking to my friend about this this morning, Earl's Court. I remember seeing you at a gig, probably the drunkest I've ever been at a gig, but I, you, you wore more outfits in a single gig than anything I've seen. Well, you were, just... drunk. you were drunk because it would have been Wembley, by the way. Was it Wembley? Yeah, was it Wembley? <laughs> yeah. was it Wembley? Yeah. Right. And the yeah. dispute was, I have a recollection of you being in a baseball outfit. Was that right? Have I got that right? It was the first tour I'd ever done that was like proper arenas. And I think partly because of the Stock Ecking Waterman thing, I kind of wanted to make it just as great as I could, really. And so no expense was spared because I kind of thought, I'm doing this, you know. Yeah, yeah. There was a sneaky feeling in the back of my mind that I thought this isn't going to last forever, so go for it. Yeah. We had this stage design that was like a horseshoe shape, and in the middle of it was a huge big riser, a box, basically. And that box had a projector at the back of it and a screen at the front of it. There was like a foot of wall around the screen. So I walked into the screen and just stood there, and then the film would kick in. And the way that the film kicked in was that I had a pedal to stand on, which a light bulb went on, and Ken, who was the projectionist, pressed go on the projector. There was no kind of like digital cabling that meant that, you know, as soon as Rick enters this point, it'll happen. And one of the things that we filmed was we filmed me having tennis balls thrown at me. I had a baseball bat and I batted the balls, but then the balls went out into the audience. Right. It was so primitive, but it worked. It really kind of worked, you know. And when I think back to some of those gigs that we did with that, some of those memories, I think, uh, uh, will live with me forever because it was just so much fun. Rick, thanks for your warmth. I've, I've loved Pleasure. it. It's been a genuine privilege today. Lovely. No, great to talk to you. All the best, Cheers. mate. Take care. So that was Rick Astley, living legend. And what you see is what you get with him. He's authentic. He's down to earth. He's aware of his place in the world. He's grateful for the life he's had. I think that's in part due to the fact that he's actually part of a double act. His wife, Lena, is also his manager. And they form a great couple. They look after their friends and the people around them. You know, I was incredibly impressed with the fact that he felt responsible for his band and I'm really looking forward to seeing him back on tour and seeing his band with him because he's looked after them when work is really hard to find for musicians at the moment. Genuinely was a wonderful conversation and I hope you enjoyed it as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullin. This episode was edited by Nick at Podmonkey. The music is by Tom Gray. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.